Good morning. Happy New Year. My name is Adam, and I'm one of the pastors here at the church. I want to say uh, thanks for being here. Um, Before we jump into the message, I want to say thank you to those of you who call Bethany home. This past week, uh, the beginning of the week, we had our Christmas services almost a week ago now and had a great response. I just want to share a couple of things. I've had off this week, so I've been able to catch all the emails and feedback, but some of what I did catch, and here's what I want to say thank you for. Um, Following the service, I had an opportunity to meet some different people here that that you brought as guests. First, I want to say thank you for inviting your friends, your family, your coworkers. One of the things that we've learned is Christmas time is one of the times of the year when a person who doesn't normally attend church will actually consider attending, and all it takes often is just a simple invite. So I met a number of guests here who are unchurched. One of them uh, was in church for the first time. Um, Actually, they were in church maybe four times in their life, invited by one of you, and I had a great opportunity, brand new. Christianity is brand new to them. Um, kind of exploring it, checking it out. And uh, the great positive feedback from them. They loved the music. They loved you. They said it was very friendly. Another person that I personally invited uh, came, and this was probably the greatest compliment. I just loved I want to say thank you. This person, again, unchurched, um, approaching the latter part of life, and they said feedback. I said, please give me honest feedback. What do you think? What do you... You know, I'd love to, and they said this, first thing out of their mouth, well, it's clear that you're thinking about us, and they referred to us as unchurched people, kind of, you know, saying, and so I asked him what he mean by that, he said, well, the message and the way people interacted with us, so I want to say thank you, great weekend, uh, great service, um, God worked in a number of ways, and so again, thank you for that, thank you for praying and inviting and uh, being a part of that. I want to continue that same energy this morning. Um, as we kind of wrap our series up this week and next week, kind of looking at the new year, um, and we're going to be talking about where we've been and kind of where we're going then into the new year with uh, personal quiet time. It's kind of this, the real heart of this morning. So let me pray for us, and then we will uh, jump right into that. God, thank you so much for Jesus. Uh, thank you for Christmas, where we got to celebrate this past week, and now we get to celebrate New Year. And I love celebrating New Year, uh, not only because of the time we get to have fun and And just think back, but also think forward and uh, start afresh. It's a great time of year to say, man, I made some mistakes. I haven't done things real well. I want to get better. Uh, Great time of year to just kind of stop and in your grace and in your mercies say, let's get better. Uh, So thank you for that opportunity. Thank you for Jesus. And God, I pray for us right now, just in the next uh, 30 minutes or so, as we um, open up the Bible and hear from you. God, it's so cool. I love I love how you work. I love how you speak to each person individually. I'm on stage talking, uh, but God, you're, you're active and working. And those who believe in you have the spirit of God living right there in them. And so God, I pray that he's fully alive and in their hearts and there's nothing holding back. And if there is, they can make that right now. So they can really hear from you. And God, if people are here this morning exploring Christianity for the very first time, would you, would you open their eyes to you and they see how much you love them and are for them and would they move into a relationship with you maybe for the first time this morning? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. To get us jumping into our uh, kind of wrapping up our expectation series, I want to kind of start out with a book. And it's a book that probably most of you in this room have heard of. Probably some of you have read it. And if you haven't heard of it, you've heard of all of the offshoots of it. The Five Love Languages. You guys heard of the book, Five Love Languages? Again, some of you, man, it saved your marriages, I hear. Some, man, it saved my kids. It, 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 it. But the premise of the book is this, right? Or whether you like the book or don't like the book. Or The premise of the book is we all speak a love language. And the sooner that I learn what language my wife speaks, and the sooner she learns what language I speak, the better off our marriage will be. Because we all have a language that we receive um, in love. And so the, the five that, that uh, the author kind of picks up on, the first one is touch. So he says, some of us, what really fills your tank and lights up all your endorphins and neurons and all the other chemical things that fly around inside of you that get you all happy and Twitter-pated. The first one is touch. So whether, you know, maybe right now, if your spouse is touch, it'd be wise to just kind of put your arm around them and give a little tight squeeze or scratch their arm or their back. And, you know, I see some of you doing it now, so I know which ones of you the language is touch. Others of you, it's words. I'd ask you to hold off on this one until the service is done. But some of you, their love language or your love language is words. So people who speak to you and, and, and not only just, you know, talk, but really talk. You know what I'm talking about? Like when they, you, you've had a bad day and you come home and your spouse says, 
and they just butter you up and, and you just feel so good and all soothed and all better. So again, some of you receive language very, very well and that's your love language. Others of you, uh, as the author goes on, is time. You say, forget those other two. I just want you to spend time with me. Um, for others, it's service. Some of you say, hey, I don't need any of that. I just want you to serve me, um, do my laundry, uh, cook a meal for me, uh, wash my floors, mow my lawn. I mean, I, if you do one of those things for me, I am loved and I'm feeling it and we're good. Others, others, it's gifts. And this, some of you may have experienced this love this past week. And when someone gives you a gift, it doesn't just, not just a gift card. I mean, if you have this, if you have this gift, if, if your language is gifts and you got a gift card from someone, this, you're probably like, this guy doesn't know me. She doesn't have a clue. But when someone gives you a gift that says, they know me, I mean, wow, this is, I mean, that speaks your love language. Now for me, Tanya and I've made jokes. I have all 10 of them. Now, some of you get that, right? Some of you are going, no, wait a minute. Isn't it called five love languages? Exactly. I'm like a bottomless pit. I mean, I am like this, um, you know, give, give, give. I'll take it all. I mean, just come on and I'll, I'll, my language is I'll take them all. And I think there's probably five that haven't even been discovered yet. And we'll work on that and write the book, 10 love languages somewhere down the road. But in all seriousness, the one, if I had to pick one, if I had to pick one, my strongest is probably words. Words mean a ton to me whether it's an email, a text message, whether it's just, and I don't just mean, hey, we appreciate you. I mean, when someone looks at me and I know they know me and I know they know where I'm at and they speak to me in a way that puts life into me, it, more than any of the others, it, that one is probably at the top of my list. Now, as I say that, one of the things, so I'm a person who's coming at life who loves words. But even with that said, one of the things I realize, and so if I realize this and my love language is words, Probably most of us in this room are going to get this, and that's talk is cheap. Have you ever heard this statement? Maybe some of you have heard statements like talk is cheap, actions are priceless. Or maybe the one that probably most of you may know is I don't believe what you say. What do you believe? I believe what you do. I mean, I want to see it. Put your love in action. Uh, talk is cheap. Um, one of the things I would say with this, one of the beauties is talk is cheap. That's why some of us right now who are trying to pay off credit card bills from Christmas and all those purchases we had, it's probably the only thing we can afford right now. So that's another reason I think uh, we get this talk is cheap. It's easy to say, it's easy to give any of us can, anyone in this room, no matter how much money you have or how much time you have or any of the other language, it's the one love that you can easily give. So it's cheap. Now, one of the things that I find is this translates into our spiritual relationship at times. Because how do we know God? Those of you who have grown up in church, how have you been taught that you get to know God? In his what? What do we call this book? His word, right? So it's talk, his word, his words. So if we kind of live with this picture that talk is cheap, I think what happens sometimes is this shifts into trouble at times trusting God. And We've been talking about expectations. That's kind of where our series has been. I'm not going to go into all the stuff that kind of set this series up, but we've been talking about expectations we have in life. And one of the expectations that I run into in my own life, and I run into it as I walk with others in their relationship with God, it's the people, if they're really honest, if, if those of us in this room really get honest, there are points in our relationship with God where we say, I can't fully or I don't fully trust God. Now, <laughs> We're all at different scales. Some of you in this room are thinking, I am on fire. I love God to death. I, and here's how I want to illustrate this. I think this is true for most of us. And here's how I want to illustrate it. Think of something in your life right now that you know that is wrong, but you did it anyway. Why did you do it? A lot of times it boils back to trust. A lot of times what it comes down to is, you know what, God, I know better than you do. This is going to make me happier. I know you say not to, and that weighs a whole lot better, but this way just looks so good. It comes down to trust. For others of us, maybe it illustrates better this way by saying um, there's pain and difficulty and suffering in life. And you say, you know what, God, I believe in you. I'm going to follow you, 
but only so far because, man, every time I seem to step out there, something hits, and I'm like, boy, I just, I don't know, God. Um, others of us, it may be, I'm not just with obedience, blowing down to trust. Others of us kind of pick the rug up and brush things under, and I, I don't know if I really want to go deep with God. With, and so at one level or not, all of us in this room probably, some may maybe not be so true, from a scale of 1 to 10, whether you're on a 1 on the scale or a full-blown 10 and say, I don't trust God at all, we struggle at sometimes with this level of trust. Now, a number of things get in the way. We talked about in week one about how John the Baptist was locked in jail and his expectation was, God, you're going to come through for me. Maybe God hasn't come through for you. I don't trust him. Pain and suffering. Some of you don't trust God because of science. Some of you have real engineering, scientific, logic-driven minds, and you're like, things aren't adding up, and so I'm not so sure. In our passage this morning, two reasons I think come out real clear. If you turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter, we're going to be right in chapter 1. If you're new to church, new to Christianity, new to the Bible, welcome. Glad you're here. Glad you're brave enough to walk in and join us. 2 Corinthians will be a little more than three quarters of the way through. You're going to hit the New Testament is what we call it, the latter parts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, so I had to think there, uh, 1 Corinthians, and then 2 Corinthians. Ran into someone this morning who got a brand new Bible for Christmas, and they knew who they are here, and I was all excited for them, and I loved it, and I said, man, and the thing that this person was all excited about is it was a really pretty Bible. It was really cool. It looked like a leather-bound Bible, but on the side, it had these cool tabs, you know, where you have all the books, and I said to this person, I mean it, you know what? I still need help with that too. So I, well, can I have your Bible? I'd love to have that Bible. Cause, so that's why I like to do that. Talk us through, get us learning where the books of the Bible are. Second Corinthians, Second Corinthians chapter 1. And here are the two reasons that are going to come out. And I'll, we'll put them right up at front and then we'll read the verses and kind of see it. Reason one, I think we have trusting God, trouble trusting God, is I don't trust the preacher. And I put preacher in quotes because I'm not just talking about me on the stage, but the person who speaks the message of God and the Bible to you, that person. Sometimes we don't trust God because we don't trust the person who's telling us. Could be a parent, could be a youth leader, could be me, could be a national um, pastor or leader, uh, but that's the first one we're going to see. So you don't trust the preacher. The second reason I think that gets some of us down to that road is we are spending more time with me than we are with God. So we're looking at life through my lenses, not God's lenses. Our younger generation is very incredibly introspective. It's one of the strengths of the younger generation, but it's also one of their great curses. Very much into psychology and, and what makes a person tick and let's take apart the family of origin and let's really delve into our deep issues. And, and that's a great thing, but it's also a curse because I think some of us spend more time being so introspective on our stuff that sometimes we're not looking at life through God's lenses, but through our own lenses, and that comes out here in this passage as well. But with this passage, look with me at verse um, 12, and we'll uh, read down through here and see if some of these uh, don't jump out at us. Verse 12, now this is our boast. This is the Apostle Paul. He wrote this. He wrote it. This is a letter written to a church, so he's talking to a whole group of people in, in the city of Corinth. Now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relationships with you in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. We have done so not according to worldly wisdom, but according to God's grace. So he says, hey, in all of our conduct with you, we've not done it in, in man's wisdom, but in God's wisdom and God's grace to us. That's how we've interacted with you. And now he's talking about this because there's some conflict between him and the church. So he's going to get into this now. Verse 13. For we do not write anything you cannot read or understand. So in other words, I've tried to keep this simple. We've kept the cookies on the bottom shelf. And I hope, and I hope that as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. So he's saying, I want you to be proud of us. We want to be proud of you. I want you to be proud of us. We want to have this good, trusting relationship where you go out and tell all your friends, hey, come join us at church this week at the city of Corinth. They've got this great guy named Paul. We love him to death. He loves us. He's going to love you. You're going to love him. That's the relationship he wants. Now, there's something that's come between that, verse 15. Because I was confident of this, I planned to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. You think, well, what does that mean? Let's hold a second here. I'm going to, I plan to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then to have you send me on my way to Judea. When I planned this, did I do it lightly 
Or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say yes, yes, and no, no? So in other words, do I make my plans in a worldly manner where I'm simply thinking about me and my ends and my desires and my dreams? Or am I making it in a, in a more holistic, godly, God-driven manner? Now, here's kind of what's unfolding here. Paul absolutely loves this church at Corinth. It's one of his favorite churches. Now, I don't get that because this church is jacked up. And that's the word I would use and maybe put a capital J in front of it. This church, when you read through 1 Corinthians, the first letter he wrote, there is, there is all kinds of horrible sexual stuff that if we would even hear in our culture today, we'd be like, whoa, that's a little out there. So there's that kind of stuff. There's, there's lawsuits. There's all kinds of divorce and stuff running all over this church. But Paul, for some reason, absolutely loves them. It's a very special place in his heart. He proposed, as you see, his, his goal was a journey to move into Macedonia. As you read in the book of Acts, you actually see he was going to Ephesus. And he proposed a route that would take him past Corinth so he could stop there on his way. And then on his way back, he could visit again. So it actually would have been two visits. And that was his desire. But it didn't happen. Okay, if you look at chapter 2, look at verse 1. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. So that's the heart of the conflict. So Paul just acknowledges, I couldn't visit you the second time. So Paul's original intention was two visits, but he only gets one visit in, and it ticks these people off. They're like, whoa, well, wait a minute, Paul. You promised we love you, you love us. You didn't come see us. We don't trust you. Now, if you really dig deep, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, if you page back just one, maybe some of you one page in your Bible, the end of 1 Corinthians, you actually see that his, his two-visit plan was a change of plans. Look at verse, uh, chapter 16, verse 5 of 1 Corinthians. He says, after I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you. So his goal was, his desire was, the word perhaps there kind of gives, he didn't set this in stone, But his desire is, I will stay with you for a while or even spend the winter. So his real heart is, I want to come. I want to be with you. I want to be with you for a really long time. But he doesn't do it. So the people get a little ticked off. And the people, and especially the people that are opposed to Paul and don't like his message, use this as ammunition to say, see, we don't trust the preacher. Therefore, we can't trust his message. Now, some of you say, we don't have a problem with that. You know what? This is a huge deal. This is a huge one. I remember as a, as a brand new pastor, I was in ministry maybe two years in, in center, central Pennsylvania out in Mifflin County. And Ted Haggard, any of you know the name Ted Haggard? Remember that name? It floated around. Some of you in the Christian circles may know his name. It was a mega church, huge church. He was on the evangelical council to the uh, U.S. president. He was, I mean, well-known guy, published author, huge church. Uh, out in Colorado, and all of a sudden these reports come flying out that he has been using illegal drugs, and he's been getting them from his masseuse, who's a man who he's having sex with. And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness. And he's denying it, and he's saying, this is the evil media coming at me and trying to bring me down, and this isn't true, and I love my wife and my kids. And, and he just goes on. Well, come to find out it was, in fact, true. Now, here I am, a young pastor. I'm looking at this, and I'm thinking, oh, my goodness. Now, you could go on with a list. I mean, it's not just him. You could, you could fill pages of men who have been national figures who end up falling to stuff like that. But forget about the national figures. Let's move closer to home. This church has history of this, don't we? Painful history, hard history. You guys had a, we've had a youth pastor here who stole a significant amount of money who broke your trust. Not only was he stealing money, but then we come to find out he's having an affair with someone, someone married here in the church. I mean, and, it, and, it, and the thing that has broken my heart is still to this day when I'll sit down with some of you who are here and some of you who aren't even here anymore, some of your kids who were here, and I sit down and I listen to them. There is still some deep pain from that. Saying, listen, I heard this guy stand up and he preached so well and his message was incredible. And then he goes and does this. And what ends up happening, it causes a skepticism where people push back and say, hey, if it ain't working for him, it's not going to work for me. He can't live it out. I'm not going to live it out. This is ridiculous. And it deep, deep wounds come in. My own, my own past, my youth pastor, I was skeptical of church to begin with. Some of you know my story. I was like, forget the church. What am I going to do with it? And then but my parents made me go. Well, I'm being forced to go. My youth pastor ends up getting arrested for soliciting a male prostitute at Park City. 
I'm like, what is this? And then not long after that, I find out that the Bible teacher I had in the Christian school that I went to up until eighth grade, all in the same church, ran away with one of his students to Florida, left his wife and I forget how many kids he had. My youth leaders, I had a youth leader who was just a little older than I was. And I, I was very honest. I'd come to church and say, I don't want to be here. I'd sit in the back row with my arms crossed and be like, you know, okay, impress me guys. Cause I really don't want to be here. And I'd watch these youth leaders preach at me and they'd preach at me and they'd preach at me. But then I'd go to the parties on Friday night. And I was honest. I'm going to the parties, guys. I'm not living for Jesus. I hear, here's what I'm doing. I was real, I just, I was real bold about it. And I thought I'd watch that youth leader there getting drunk off his can, underage drinking, and then come to him preach at me on Sunday morning. And I could go on with stories. Some of you have stories of parents and loved ones who you lived with who would preach at you, but yet you watch lives that you're like, whoa, no, wait a minute. Something is not connecting here. Or you'd watch them at church around all their church buddies with a big smile on their face while at home they're laying hands on you in ways that should not be. And what I find happens at times is, and this is what's going on here. They say, Paul, we don't trust you. Your word has been broken. Therefore, we don't trust your message. And it, it's, it's a common thing. And the first thing I want to say, first thing, I want to apologize for all those national people and the people that have been here in the history of this church that have done that. It grieves my heart. It grieves my heart. It, it, I've heard probably the number one excuse I hear from people to walk away from the church is this issue. Probably more than any other issue I hear this used is, so I have nothing to do with you guys. It grieves my heart. The second thing I'll say is this. I hope and I pray that myself, Pastor Chris, and our elders and any other leader in this church never fall to the big, I'll call them major sins. You know, the affairs. The, I hope that never happens. I hope, pray by God's grace, it never happens. But here's what I do know. I'm a sinner. Ask my little boy. He said to me the other day, Daddy, you're grumpy. And I said, yep, I am grumpy. You're right. You called it. I just got out of bed in the wrong side of bed and I was not happy and I'm grouching around and he just called me out. I mean, I'm thankful he was bold enough to do it. And I stopped and I said, you're right. I got it under control. Didn't feel good in the inside yet, but I smiled on the outside. By the time I got to bed that night though, I sat down with him and I apologized to him. But here's what I know. I'm human and I fully get, and our elders are human. Chris is human. Your leaders that maybe lead your small group or your Sunday school class, we're human. And at times I'm going to continue to fail and I will continue to do things that fall short of the expectation of what a pastor should do. Some of you still can't get past the way I dress. That doesn't live up to what a pastor should be, what a pastor should do. And, and at times I'm going to do things and say things that people just, ah, and again, I'm sorry that happens. And I understand fully that as I do that and as other leaders around us do it, it at times compromises the message. And it pains my heart and I work hard not to let it happen, but it's going to happen. So the thing that's interesting, and if, if you're struggling with this, if this is an area where you've struggled, I, I wanna, or if you have friends that do, you say, well, how do I get past this, Adam? What's the answer? Because Paul, obviously, they're ticked off at Paul. And if they got problems with the Apostle Paul, you're probably going to have problems with me at some point. So how do you deal with it? I want you to hold this, and we're going to come back to this then a little later. But right now I'm saying I get this. Paul gets this. But the thing that's interesting with Paul, look at verse 18. Paul doesn't go right into a lot of emphasis on his um, character. He's more concerned. Okay, he says, guys, I get that I've got issues. I get that we didn't follow through in my word. But you know what? There's a message at stake here. He's going to spend more of his energy and really come down hard with some, in, in the original language, you, and even in your English language, Bibles, you're going to see some exclamation points in here. And he's, he's passionate about this because he wants the message to be clear. And here it comes. Look at verse 18. But as surely as God is faithful. So he says, I may not be faithful. You may not see me as faithful, but God is faithful. Our message to you is not yes and no. For the son of God... Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. So in other words, you may not trust me, but you can trust God. It's a guaranteed thing. And here's where he goes. Look at verse 20 then. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. So all of God's promises, everything he has promised you and he's promised me come true in the person of Jesus. He wants to make that, drive that point very clear. In Christ, and so through him, 
is the amen, is spoken by us to the glory of God. Verse 21, now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as deposit guaranteeing what is to come. So in other words, he's saying, listen, guys, you may not trust me, but I want to make sure real clear before I start defending myself that the message that I preached, that I delivered is trustworthy. You can trust God. God is fully 110% faithful and he will come through on his promises to you. And they come through Jesus. Now that leads to the second thing here of the, okay, so there's the, I don't trust the preacher. Now Paul's going to begin shifting. Okay, the message is trustworthy. So what's the issue then? Sometimes the issue then becomes, the second reason I talked about, is I'm spending more time with me than with God. Now you say, well, how on earth, Adam, do you get that out of this passage? Where, where do you see that? You've got to read between the lines a little bit, but let's see if you can uh, follow this. First one. Here's the, was he read between the lines? Here's what I think that drives this. We too often... We, I'm putting me, we, I'm not saying you, we, all of us, too often criticize others through the lenses of our own faults. Look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Let me ask you a question as you read this. I want you to, you guys are smart. Why did Paul, if you had to answer the question, why does Paul not go visit this church the second time? Okay, listen, listen to his own words. So I made up my mind, verse 1, that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? I wrote as I did so that when I came, I should not be distressed by those who ought to make me rejoice. I have confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy. For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, referring to 1 Corinthians, not to grieve you but to let you know the depth of my love for you. So what keeps him from visiting? What doesn't he want to happen? He doesn't want to come and grieve the people he loves. So whose problem is it that he doesn't show up the second time? Is it his or theirs? It's their problem. When you read through 1 Corinthians, his first letter to them, there is some hard things said there. They are a messed up bunch of people. They're doing some things that I'm, I'd, I'd be embarrassed to even run into. I mean, it is some tough stuff. And what he says to me, he says, you guys, because of how you're living, I cannot come visit you because I'm not about to, I don't want to come. Uh, you know, I hear wives at times who's, who's, who are stay-at-home moms, and they, I hear this complaint often. It's, it, my wife will even say it at times that, that the dad comes home, and what's the dad always then? The dad's the fun guy, right? The mom's there dealing with discipline all day long, and then the dad just gets to whisk right in, play with the kids all night, and the mom looks like the bad guy. And, and, and what Paul's saying is I don't want to just show up like the dad after work to come home and and have to lay the hammer down. You guys have some problems. You're not dealing with your issues, so I can't come visit you. Now, here's what I find what happens often. This church, though, this group of people has problems, and they look back at Paul and say, well, Paul, it's your problem. I find this is absolute hardcore classic behavior of foolish people, people who are trapped in their own devices and sins. How many of you have ever stepped out to confront someone? You see something in someone's life, you're like, man, they're wrecking their life. I love them. I care for them. Let's, let's talk about this. Till you get done with the message or the, or the conversation, how many of you have had the experience where you walk away thinking, they didn't get the message? Because till I left, it's all about who? It's me. It's like they turn the whole conversation back at you. Some of you are married to that person, right? I mean, you go to confront them, you're like, whoa, no, wait a minute. And, it, and so this is classic behavior. I think... Deeper than that, here's another way I think this goes down. I, and I'll use a story in my own life that maybe illustrates this in a bigger picture uh, for some of you. Tanya and I one time went to visit someone at the Christmas season before we were married. Now, I've shared very openly with the church before, before I came to Jesus and in my teen years, I, had, I, was, I didn't live for Jesus at all and, and I was not pure going into marriage. Did not save myself for my wife. But when I met my wife, I'm like, we're going to do this thing right. I didn't even kiss her until we were engaged. I didn't even hold her hand until the week before we got, I mean, this was a big, I mean, we are going to walk a tight, tight rope because I'm not going to fail in this area. We go out to visit this, this person at Christmas time. We stay in their house. 
Everyone goes to bed the one night. Tiny and I stayed up talking. Didn't think anything of it. The week head off to bed. We finish our visit the rest of the week. We head home. I head back up to school in upstate New York to finish out my, my schooling. We're working towards marriage. We're saving up money, trying to fit. And all of a sudden, I get this letter. I go to the mailbox, open up the letter, and it's from the person whose home we stayed at. And this letter is just filled with, you're going to be a horrible pastor. You're a terrible man. You have no integrity. You're, and just ripped me a new one. And I'm sitting there thinking, and I, I was broken. Come to find out what they were accusing us of was being together physically before marriage in their home. And they were all ticked off. And I'm like, what on earth? So I come back to this person and they say, well, the, they, they just get all irrational and angry at me. And, and they say, well, the trash can was full of tissues. I'm like, well, yeah, you've got cats and you've got mold in this home. And I'm allergic deathly to both of them. And I was blowing my nose all night long. How does that prove I've done anything with my wife? Come to find out, come to find out this person struggles with pornography and they struggle, they themselves are in a relationship outside of marriage. That all comes out later on. So what I find happens a lot. Now, this is what I see happen. They were looking, they put their glasses on of their struggle and look at everyone else through their struggle. And here's what I see a lot. I'll hear men say this. Here's how I hear men say it. Men that struggle with pornography kind of assume every man struggles with lust. That's not true. I'm just here to say I've met a lot of men that don't struggle with lust. But for some reason, I think, well, I struggle with it. Not saying I do, but the person says I. So they put their lenses, their glasses on. They look at everyone else's, everyone else's. Greed. I know there's some people that really struggle with greed. And they put the glasses on. And then they look at everyone else. Well, everyone else must struggle with greed too. No. <laughs> I know a lot of, you know a lot of people that don't. Selfishness, pride. And you go on down the list. So I think sometimes what we do is we kind of personify our own struggle and look at everyone else as though you have the same struggle I have. And I even do this in my preaching at times. At times I think, well, the things I struggle with, you must struggle with. And you can probably hear it come out. And it's just not true. So this church kind of looks back at Paul. It's their problem, but they make it Paul's problem. It's classic uh, behavior. The second point I think that they do, that they kind of pull into. Now, you may have heard this. If you've ever studied how to negotiate in conflict, I think this, this will may sound familiar to you. If not, this may be brand new. But what they begin to do, too, is they focus on, and this is what we do classic, we focus on the position and miss the interest. In turn, what ends up happening is we tell ourselves stories. You say, what does that mean, Adam? Okay, well, maybe another way to say it is I focus on being right instead of being successful. Or maybe another way to say this, I focus on the trees and miss the forest. I miss the forest for the trees. I get that right? I the forest for the trees. Let me, let me show you an example. Husband and wife. You know what I find hilarious? <laughs> Tanya and I drive separately for this very reason, I think, to church. Isn't Sunday morning one of the ugliest times in the family? Any of you relate to this? I mean, you love Jesus so much, right? You love Jesus. We're going to worship Jesus, but you, until you get in the car, kids, get in the car now. We're going because we love Jesus, gosh darn it. And you're, you're gritting through your teeth and you're yelling at one another. And why are you always late? And, well, and until you get to church, it's like, ah, here we are to worship Jesus. I mean, Sunday morning can just be a, a real, I mean, it, it's, it's tense. It's been tense in my family, in my family now time. So I think Tony and I just, you know what? You drive your car, I'll drive my car. We'll get to church in one piece and we'll be happy and worship together. Uh, but all seriousness, I drive separate because I got to be here earlier anyway. But, but see what I think happens sometimes is between husbands and wives, we get into the position and miss the interest. Uh, when a, when a, the husband, let's say, is out in the car boiling over, we're going to be late again, and he's sitting there gritting his teeth, and finally the wife comes out all happy, ah, oh, her hair's all done nice, and the makeup's all perfect, and gets in the car and shuts the door, and he yells. At this point, what do both of them want? This is what I think we miss in conflict. They, we, we both want something. There's a common interest. We both want to get to church. The common goal for both of them, right? So, but what ends up happening, you start arguing over the position and you miss the common interest. Instead of stop saying, okay, we both want to get to church, right, honey? Yeah, I want to get to church. I want to get to church. We want to get there in happy, pleasant moods, right? Yeah, we both agree on that. Yeah, okay. We start arguing over position. Why are you always late? And she argues back positionally. I'm not always late. I was on time last week. No, you weren't in time last week. You were two minutes late. Oh, no. And you get on this, all this positional stuff. He said, she said, all this stuff that you can try and prove and get into the court of law and you go back and forth. And the whole time you're missing the interest of the conversation, which is we all want the same thing here. 
You know, and then you may start arguing, well, if you would have set your alarm on time, well, you know what, if you wouldn't have been snoring all night, well, you know what, if you would have, wouldn't have used all the hot water in the shower, or, you know, if you wouldn't have, and you get into this, all this that isn't even focused on the interest. Now, here's why I share all this. Here's why I share this. I think we do this with God. This church does this with Paul. You kind of read between the lines here, some of that. But I think we do this with God. What's God's position towards us? As a sinner, what does the Bible teach about God and sin? There's wrath for it. The Bible's very clear. God is holy, we are not. He looks down at us, not happy. Position. What is his interest? What is his interest? Is he not for you? Doesn't he want an intimate relationship with every single one of us in this room? You say, no, I had him. How can it be both? He's upset positionally, but yet he has this interest it's for me. Well, talk to a parent sometime. <laughs> right? Parents in the room, don't you love your kids to death? But some days you're just like, what? I mean, sorry, kids. If Sorry, I apologize. That's a secret out about your mom and dad. You can talk to them when you get home this afternoon. I, I promise it's somewhere in there. But God looks down and he says, you know what? My position is sin cannot be in heaven with me. Sin cannot be in my presence. And I can't have fellowship with sin. But uh, it, my interest is I am for you. But what some of us end up doing is we get lost on the position. We get lost on the guilt and the shame and the, I am such a loser and I'm such a, man, I'm so depraved. Some of us even throw big theological terms in and I'm wicked to the core and I can't do anything right. And I even was with someone this past week and they're talking about and they're confessing all their junk and just going on and on. And I'm sitting there thinking, though it was done, it was just a defeatist life. And, but they aren't finding victory in life. And I'm like, man. I get in that same position and, and we start telling ourselves stories because we feel the shame and this guilt and this stuff and we feel the separation and instead of stopping and saying, you know what, God, there's an interest here. You want us to be close. You want me to be close. You want to be close with me. Let's focus this and make it happen. And here's how this works. I think it brings victory in the Christian life. For example, if I'm an heir of the world, the truth of scripture When I'm in Christ, those of you who are believers in Jesus, it says you're an heir. You're in God's will. You're a child of God. If I'm an heir of the world, if I stop telling myself stories that I'm, I am, I'm so this and I'm so that, and I can't afford to just stop and say, you know what? God's interest is for me. He's moved in my direction. The truth is in Jesus, in this passage, everything is a yes. All his promises are yes. I'm an heir of the world. Why covet? Why covet? What can you possibly give me that I don't already have in Jesus? Think of another one. Scripture teaches that God is my father. If I am in, again, it's all yes in Jesus. So I am in Jesus. If I am, I can call God daddy. So why worry and be afraid? What anxiety do I need if God is my daddy and he loves me and he is for me and he is in total control of life? But see, we tell ourselves stories. Oh my goodness, I can't pay the credit card bill. I put too much on the Christmas on that thing and I don't know what I'm going to do now. And, and, and we get all worried and anxious and afraid and, and God's my dad. He's not going to abandon me. Romans chapter six says we are dead to sin. It's, it's reality. It's the interest. It's, it's, it's truth. We are dead to sin in Jesus. We are dead to sin. So why live in it? I'm loved with an everlasting love. So why in the world do I work so hard to prove my worth to the world and to you? See, it's easy to become convinced that we can never change or that God is ready to kick me to the curb as I listen to my voice inside my head and I focus on myself and my family of origin and I dig through all the junk in my life and I meditate and kick it all around. I begin, I'm never going to change. I've messed up for the millionth time. But the reality is we need to stop listening to the position and the voices in our head and start focusing on the interest and the truth of God that he's saying to us. Now, let me bring all this to a kind of a conclusion. How do I trust God? How do I really okay, move, get these points and kind of move forward? I think it's similar. The answer that I would give is similar to the answer that I give to couples who I've sat with over the, over the years who have found themselves in the unfortunate position of an affair. And a couple will say, we want to make this work. How do we make it work? Because I don't trust them. 
I don't trust them. What do, you, what do you tell a couple like that? How do you move forward? How do you regain trust when it's lost? It's not something you just, it's not snap of a finger and we got it. It's not something I just tell them, okay, trust them, trust them, because they still do things. And the answer, the only answer I've ever found, the only one, is two words, time and with. Time and with. It's the only thing I've ever found, is spend time with God, time and with. If you say, I don't trust God, well, that's because we don't spend enough time with him. Trust is a relational commodity. It's relational. I will not get it if I don't, if I don't trust you or you don't trust me. We will never overcome that if we don't spend time together. We're never going to challenge that trust. We're never going to push back to see if we're growing in it. Trust is a relational thing. And so in order to grow it, it's got to be done in the context of relationship. And relationship happens by spending time and being with someone. Now, this is where I bring this all down to one of my passions as a pastor. Huge passion. And I'll sew this whole thing up and hopefully it makes all sense. I've asked myself when I decide to go into ministry, okay, what does it mean to be a pastor? What does it really mean to shepherd people? And I've looked at the limited time and energy that I have to give. And I've asked myself, okay, if you're going to be successful, if you're going to stand before Jesus one day and hear, well done, pick one thing that you can really make sure you do well. You may fail at everything else, but what's the one thing? So, okay, is it going to be man, let's have great mission, vision, and values and really lead the elder board and let's, let's do this whole organizational systems and process thing with, with gusto. Maybe it's, maybe it's let's do small groups and I might really get people to do life together and really experience life with each other. Maybe it's, maybe it's let's have a really good care system, do lots of counseling and get, make sure I'm a person that's beside every bedside when people are sick and I visit. Maybe it's, maybe it's education. So let's get people into classes and teaching opportunities and learning. And, and maybe it's, and you go on down a list of all these, maybe it's a great Sunday morning service with phenomenal worship and just people come here and they're moved and they're, Wow. All that's good stuff, but I've come back to one thing. I see, you know what, all that's fine. But if I can do one thing as a pastor, it's encourage people that God's entrusted to the care of this church to get into the Bible for themselves. You know, I hear people say to me, I hope people say at times, and I get this, I totally get this. I lived when I worked at Super Value, and I, I relate to this oh man, I just need Sunday morning so bad because I just need to come back there and get a shot in the arm and get more hope and rejuvenated. And I, you know what? You know, I say to people like that, I'm glad we give you a shot in the arm. I'm glad you find this motivational and encouraging. I'm glad people come here and I, and I hope that continues. I hope it never ends. But honestly, you don't need me to get it. And if you're leaning into me to get it, I'm going to let you down. That first thing, I don't trust the preacher. I'm going to do something that ticks you off. I'm going to do something where you're going to step back and say, no, wait a minute. So I, I have such a passion to help people see that you, you grow day in and day out by simply getting into the Bible and saying, God, here I am to meet you. I'm here to meet you. So that's, I think, how we overcome that first one. We don't trust the preacher. Well, that's fine. You have a lot of people you don't trust in life, but you can trust God. So covet to say, you know what? I'm going to spend time there every morning or every night. If, if you're not a morning person, I, every sometime in a day, I am going to get into this book and I'm doing it not to check a thing off the list because I want to be with God. I want to see him. I want to know him. I want to I love him because of all he's done for me. I tell people all the time, if you're not doing that, you're not going to grow as a Christian. If you're coming here, depending on me as your growth or your Sunday school teacher or your small group, you're going to be sorely disappointed. I, it's, it's a guaranteed. At some point, I'm going to let you down. Your Sunday school teacher is going to let you down. Your mom and dad are going to let you down. Your youth leader is going to let you down. Pastor Chris is going to let you down. You've got to look to God alone and stand with him. The second one then I think comes back to how about with me? We, we look at ourselves to our own lenses. Well, that's where I say a quiet time is so important. What I'm doing with a quiet time is I'm sitting down with God and I'm opening this up and not looking at it through my lenses, but I'm saying, God, show me life through your lenses. I think so often I have this preconceived way of thinking and I always take that preconception to the Bible. 
And my challenge is when I open these pages up and read them, I try and wipe my Republican background and heritage that my family passed on to me. I try and wipe away my, the schooling and some of the stuff that's been all the boxes that people have put around and the different things. I say, God, this, help me to see you afresh and anew. And if there's something I'm thinking wrong, show it to me. Don't let me see you through the lenses that, that I've constructed, but let me see you through the lenses that you've constructed your word. I'm here to meet you. I'm here to be with you. Show me you through the person of Jesus in this Bible. So again, that, and then it overcomes the second one. I think we stopped looking at it. Here's what we've done as a church. Because this is such a passion of mine, our elders, the other uh, leaders here, we've said, okay, how do we help people get into the Bible for themselves? Well, first of all, every year at New Year, you're probably, this is my third one of these now, you're probably like, I'm tired of coming to church at New Year because all we're hearing about is do, read your Bible, read your Bible. Every year at New Year, when we're all talking about resolutions, we're going to stop and just talk about, are we putting on our resolution list, let's get better at spending time with God. I mean, we can all say it. So what we're going to do is every year, and we did it again this year, put together a reading plan. This year, the reading plan, we're going to work through the promises of God. Now, some of you say, I've got my own plan. I've got my own plan that works. That's awesome. <laughs> Stick with it and keep doing it. Some of you use the, the version Bible and the apps and all the cool stuff. And you say, Adam, this isn't on an app, so it's not for me. That's cool. I get it. Keep doing what you're doing, but do something. And we put this together, though, because it's encouraging. Um, in our family, we're going to do this this year. So I want all of us to doing it together. So I can say to Luke and, you know, through his 10-year-old eyes, what did you get out of the passage in, in um, Timothy this morning? He can tell me and I can talk to him and at times I learn from him and at times he learns from me. And then we can come to church and I can say to Chris in the office in the, during the week, hey man, what did you get out of this? I can talk to the elders. So it's, I find that when we're all kind of tracking together, it helps with the accountability and the encouragement. The, the ladies group that meets on Wednesday, they've been a huge encouragement to me. They've taken this on Wednesday, I think Wednesday morning. And they've, they've gone through this and they just, I mean, I'm down the hall in my office and I hear laughter come out of the room and they have a great time just going through. But I think it's so cool because they're all trafficking together, learning from one another. So that's why we put together a plan and encourage everyone to get on one plan because I think it just encourages the energy around helping me do it. The second thing we've done is we put together a journal and you say, well, Adam, what's the big deal about a journal? Here, I just, I want to, if you've never considered journaling, I'd really encourage you to consider it couple things with a journal. Journals slow down your thinking. You can talk faster than you can write. Did you ever think about that? And so what journaling does is when I read a passage and then force myself with pen in hand to write, it pushes the thoughts slow. And it forces me to really think and meditate. It's one thing. Second thing journaling does is I'm able to see my progress and my growth. I can, I love going back to past journals and I'm like, oh my goodness. Oh, wow. <laughs> I struggled with, whoa. I mean, it's crazy stuff. I don't want any of you ever to find them because I'm there's some dark stuff back in some of them, but it's cool. And it's encouraging to go back and read. And, and the other thing that's encouraging is time. You have these aha moments where I will mark it all up and I'll put tabs in there. And I've gone back at times to read what God showed me. But here's the final thing I'll share with journals that are really encouraging. If you get into practice of doing this, this past year, I'll be very candid. I shared this with the elders here a few weeks ago, I struggled with my quiet time this past fall, late fall, or, or just over the last two months. It's been a struggle, a horrible struggle, getting it done, doing it consistently, doing it with energy. And I've been, I mean, my pages have been empty. And I'm, I thought something, the one day I'm praying about it, and God says, Adam, pull your other journals from the shelf. So I go get my other journals down. My last four journals, all this time of year have empty pages. This is what's cool about a journal. I'm like, that's interesting. Every year, come about late October, early November, my journal dries up. Why is that? But what's cool was because I had a journal, I'm able to track it. It took some of the guilt off and it helped me start to look at the reality of seasonal. You know, it gets darker earlier that I'm, I'm more into the summer. And, and you go on down a list of reasons why church, church gets really busy this time of year. Very, very busy. So I'm realizing, man, maybe I'm not managing my stress well. And, and so it was just really neat. So again, journaling provides you those cool opportunities to, be able to go back. So again, if you want a journal, here's the final thing I'll say about the journal. We charge for the journal. You say, why do you charge money for the journal? I've had this asked a couple of times. Well, here's why. All we're doing is covering our cost. What I learned in student ministry, working with teenagers, we used to give journals away. 
Every person, every student, we had um, one year close to 100 students. We're giving them all journals. Here's a journal. Here's a journal. Here, do, do a quiet time. Do a quiet time. We don't want anything to do a quiet time. Guess what we found out? We had, when we gave them away, less taken than when we charged for them. So what sense does that make? We're giving away for free and no one wants it. We charge for it and everyone wants it. So I started thinking about that. Then the other thing I started realizing is when we gave it away, no one used it. When we charged for it, we had more people use it. So I think it's this psychological thing. It says, wow, I'm paying for something. I'm going to get my $8 worth. We're going to make sure I get my money's worth in this thing. Cause I'm, it wasn't just, it, we value it more. So again, um, but if money's an issue in all seriousness, if money, we do, if you want a journal and money's an issue, please see us and we will get one in your hands. It's, we're just trying to cover our cost with the printing and all that stuff. So that's all that is. So anyway, that's the whole thing about a quiet time. Let me wrap up by saying this. I'll say this and go to prayer. This is a quote by the guy by the name of John Stott, great theologian, great thinker, has contributed a ton to the evangelical world. He says this, it is not by accident that in Greek, the Greek language, which is the Bible is written in, one and the same noun, and there it is, does duty for both grace and gratitude. See what he's saying? The word grace and the word gratitude, that word is the, or, is, is the foundation of both those terms. Here's one of the things I love about a quiet time. When I get into the Bible for myself and I come there to not, not lean into Chris, I, I like Chris a lot and I lean into him a lot and he's a huge encouragement to me, not to lean into our elders, but when I come to lean in me and God. And when I come not to look at life through my lenses, but look at God, look at life and me through his lenses. And I begin to really absorb all that he has done for me and all of God's promises that have come true in Jesus for me. The grace that has moved in my way produces unbelievable gratitude. And I begin to live with my hands open and I begin to live not as a negative, nasty, grumpy dad or husband or pastor, but as someone who's walking around saying, I got joy in my heart because of the grace of God that has come alive in me. So again, my challenge this new year, and we're going to talk again about next, next week and dive a little deeper into how to do it. Um, but let's resolve to spend some time with God so we elevate the trust factor between him and us. God, thanks so much for Jesus. God, as we just spend some time now meditating and listening to some music played as we just think and process who you are and do we trust you and, and what gets in the way of that, God, would you, would you speak to us? Would you help us be honest with you? Would you help us to be um, uh, probe deep? Uh, and God, every one of us through this next couple of minutes, would we really be honest with how we're doing with spending time with you? Would we be honest about that? And uh, God, probably most of us, most of us in this room, not all of us, but most of us can say we could improve in that. So God, would you just meet us individually? Help us to make some commitments here in our seats Let's say this year, 2013, I'm going to commit, I'm going to resolve to spending more time with God. Not just reading, not just writing, not just praying, but I'm going to spend time with God. I'm going to commit to doing my quiet time with a little more energy and a little more fervor. Really to see his truth about me. And to help me not lean so much into other people, but really help me lean into you. So God, help us with that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.